0: This is Rebecca Lowe or Rebecca Lua if you listen to Suboptimal Radio and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable.
1: This is a Men in Blazers post-blazer compod special. Just Raj. On my own. Like Jose Mourinho when he watches Chelsea play. Alone in a hotel room on his iPad. My loneliness is compounded by the fact that this weekend we were surrounded by over 1,400 of you football fans who traveled from around the country to attend our first ever BlazerCon. UGFOPs flew in from all points: Los Angeles, Austin, Indianapolis, San Francisco. Huge group up from Orlando, Dallas, Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, it was especially poignant to be together against the backdrop of the heartbreaking events in Paris, at which football and the Germany-France friendly at the Stade de France were front and centre, during which French international La Sanna lost a cousin and a remarkable Everton blogger, French Toffees, whom I've long followed, was among the victims. One of the attendees at Blazercon, a Frenchman, Vadim Congenborn, Normandy-bred, put it best when he spoke on Saturday night, and said football is about peace. The communal spirit at Blazercom was a remarkable solve. You came dressed as Marouane Fellaini, with a tiny Jack Wilshire attached to your nipple, as Queen's Park raisins, as a pregnant-looking Frank Lampard replete with English muffins. There was more tweed than a Merchant Ivory movie set, football jerseys spilleth over, I spotted at least two Wigan shirts, five 1994 u.s world cup jerseys and one fantastic proud kansas city Wiz creation witnessing just how far how fast football's come in this country since i moved here in 1993 i found it all inspiring and incredibly humbling it was also an honor to be on the stage with such an all-star lineup to use american language the commissioners of three huge leagues richard scudamore of the English Premier League, Christian Seifer of the Bundesliga and Don Garber of MLS, Heather O'Reilly, Ali Krieger and Becky Sauerbrunn of the all-conquering US women's national team, Roberto Martinez, oh, Roberto Martinez, the manager of Everton who taught with such passion about his experience of John Stone's transfer d'Alliance with Chelsea, the owners of Liverpool, City, Southampton, Bournemouth, Crystal Palace, Roma, Seattle Sounders, New England and Orlando City talked about their visions for the future. And John Green, Electronic Arts Visionary, Peter Moore, Kyle Martino, Alexi Lalas, Brad Friedel, John Strong, Katie Nolan and the mighty, mighty Ray Hudson brought their own magic. My highlight was listening to one GFOP hold an entire bar in a sense of wonder, enthralled, as she told us stories of Rebecca Lowe playing on the Mercersburg Academy soccer team for one glorious season when she came over for high school in the US for one year. The GFOP who played with her told us that back then she was called Becky Lowe and was, quote, crap at soccer. But the coach still insisted she play at striker because she was English. Indeed. Saturday night ended with a glut of the presenters in a bar drinking Guinness with Blazer Connors. One of you got a cab home on Saturday with Crystal Palace owner Steve Parrish. You grabbed a slice of pizza, you then got a taxi somewhere with him. If that was you, please be in touch. He wants to thank you properly in the light of day. Oh, A massive thanks to our sponsors, without whom all of this wouldn't have been possible, especially EA Sports, FIFA, Mini and Adidas as well as a handful of GFOPs who've listened to Men In Blazers from our very first off-the-board podcast, which really redefined crap. We only had seven listeners, all of whom were there. Jason Kennedy, Mark Cole, Josh Cale, and the likes of Colbert Cannon, who's never missed a show. For those of you who attended, thanks for your feedback. Keep pouring it in. We savour every piece. We'll put it to good use for BlazerCon 2, Electric Boogaloo. And please spread the word for next year. For those of you who couldn't make it to this con, we'll be presenting a show, the Men in Blazers show, BlazerCon special. Special, special. Tuesday, November 24th. This is this Tuesday upcoming, 11 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. And more of the sessions will be made available in special pods in the weeks to come. For now, here's a taste of BlazerCon Opening night, the keynote between the remarkable Rebecca Lowe, Becky Lowe, and EPL Executive Chairman Richard Scudamore. First, the opening introductions. Vive la France and Kung Fu Fighting America. I feel like I've just wandered into the soccer theme bar for I never had. <laughs> 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 oh, GFOPs, thank you for coming to Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, men in Blazers, we've always joked that so- soccer
2: Oh yes yeah. soccer soccer
1: <laughs> is the sport of the future in America. Yeah. As it has been since nineteen seventy-two. Yep. Still waiting. As I look around this packed center tonight at Blazer Comp, it's pretty clear that unless I'm dreaming. That future is now. A story I've often told on the pod, when I first came to America, it was long enough ago that Everton got into the FA Cup semi-final. It wasn't on television here. Can you believe that world, children? Yeah. And I had to phone my father, and phone calls in those days really expensive, and he held the phone by the radio in Liverpool, 90 minutes <laughs> so I could follow the game they won by the way <laughs> now our cup floweth over so much football on in the United States every weekend from the elite leagues around the world you could make the case that America is football's true global home the, the next 36 hours are a feast at a game we love in the country we love. A chance to talk about the rise of the game globally and how fandom is evolving in the United States. We've got so many amazing people, global domestic thinkers, commissioners, owners, managers, players, world champion, U.S. Women's national team stars. Yes. Charlie is a red. Charlie. For the English Premier League, the Bundesliga, Syria, MLS, and the National Women's Soccer League. Tonight is an amazing night. It's, it's, tonight to me is like Jerry Jones, Adam Silver, and Mark Cuban paratrooping into South London to try and win the hearts and minds of European sports fans. Yeah. Tonight is a night to make all of our nipples tingle. It really is. Yeah. America loves football, and global football loves America. This is the greatest gathering, Dave Yeah of global football intelligentsia in America since the 1994 World Cup. I'm not sure if that's true, but it sounds good. Yeah, go with it. It's definitely the greatest day in Brooklyn, in sports, since the Dodgers won the World Series in
2: 1955.
1: (laughs) Good year. I want to thank you all, all of you GFOPs who have traveled across the country by train, by plane, by automobile, by Steamboat to explore with us the shifting tectonic plates of global football, to drink Guinness, and to eat pies. Both Devo and I, I've got to say, we find it very surreal. We find it incredibly poetic, and very, very humbling. So thank you.
2: Let's kick it off. Okay, it's time to leap into the keynote of our conference. We're going big picture. We love all forms of soccer but the Premier League is our core text. It's your Torah, Rog. (laughs) It is a huge delight for us to kick off with two such remarkable guests talking about the Premier League. It's explosive global growth, it's surging presence in the world of American sporting fandom that unites us all here in Brooklyn tonight. To kick things off, we could be in no better hands than with the woman who in summer 2013 made the most important transatlantic trip since the Mayflower. <laughs> Coming to these great shores to captain NBC Sports Premier League coverage and contextualize, in a sec, the league's ever evolving narrative. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome to the stage a rose amongst these two English thorns. The mother of dragons! The one and only Mercersburg Academy's own lady, Rebecca
1: Lowe. <laughs>
0: Way to kick off BlazerCon than to talk more about the Barclays Premier League past, present, and its future as well. And who better to do that with than a man who has been called the father of the modern game? He is the executive chairman of the Barclays Premier League. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Richard Scudamore. We have a lot to talk about, Richard. We do. We're going to start by talking a little bit about you. Oh dear. For anybody who's here this evening who doesn't know as much about you as perhaps they do in the UK, can you give us a little sense of yourself and how growing up in the UK, football came into your life?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, hello, everybody, especially the GFOPs in the audience. I had to get here to see probably the largest ever physical gathering of GFOPs that have ever been assembled in one place, even though clearly in a digital world you do assemble in slightly larger numbers. A sense of myself, I was born and raised, fortunately, in a small town called Bristol in England. It's actually quite a large town. Um, the reason I was able to get this job is because I wasn't from London or from the Northwest. <laughs> because such was the football administration politics in, the, in England. that the, the London clubs tended not to trust the, uh, the Liverpools and the Evertons and the Manchester clubs. And therefore, when I said I was from Bristol, they said, well, you know nothing about football. That should be absolutely <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Um, and to this day, being a Bristol City fan helps do the job um, because there's clearly no conflict of interest um, and there's not likely to be one anytime soon. But how I got into it is remarkable, really. My father um, took me to my first game and my father was, um, sadly, was polio disabled. Um, and he was in a wheelchair all his life, um, he was in a wheelchair um, when, when I came along. And uh, we were actually born in a part of Bristol that you should be a Bristol Rovers fan. Um, We were born north of the river, and south of the river is basically Bristol City. But in 1955, when my uncle pushed my dad in his wheelchair to Bristol Rovers, they suddenly refused to let anybody in in a wheelchair. Um, And so my uncle (laughs) took it upon himself to push my dad to Bristol City. Now... The logistics of this are quite a challenge, because they only lived a mile from Bristol Rovers ground, but five miles from Bristol City's ground, and they pushed him every Saturday, pushed him back. The fact that my dad didn't want to go, he didn't have much choice. Um, uh, Once my uncle undid the brakes, there was nothing he could do about it, and so that's Bristol City, and I went to my first ever game at Bristol City in in England in those days, back in the the early mid-60s. They used to have a thing called an invalid carriage. It doesn't sound politically very correct now, and it was a plastic car, a three-wheel car, that the people used to use if they couldn't actually, if they had no use of their legs. And instead of taking his wheelchair, he used to leave his wheelchair at home and take me in the side of this thing. And we used to go in right to the side of the pitch, sit there, turn it side on, open the door, and I was sat pitch side at Bristol City, and uh, that was in 1965. And here I am. So. That's it. That's how it started.
0: That is a great story. That is a great story. Um, 16 years ago, 1999, yeah. when you took the job at the Premier League, just tell us, what was Premier League football like then? Um,
3: well, in, in fairness, it was, it was pretty good, remember. It had a good start. It had come from 1992. And we all know the reasons why it suddenly got off to a good start. It couldn't have got any worse, really, could it, in terms of... Um, You know, what what English football had gone through in the late 80s in terms of the disasters, Bradford, Heysel, Hillsborough, um, the government wanting to shut it, basically. Um, You know, Margaret Thatcher's answer to uh, away fans was to not have any, um, which was pretty difficult. Um, And then, of course, in 1992, along came something had to happen. Along came pay television, and and there was some investment, and the stadia were, by law, the stadia had to be improved, moving to all-seater. And so it had a decent start in the first five or six years, in fairness. It had a a, a really good start. Helped by the England team performance in Euro 96. Again, if only uh, England could host a World Cup at some point. If only we could get to another semi-final. If only (laughs) we could win a friendly against Spain of a Friday (laughs) evening. Um, But the the truth is, um, it's... You know, it would be brilliant if we could if we could do something. And 90, Euro '96 definitely was a platform that helped the Premier League grow, certainly in England. By the time I got there, though, we had one international contract. It was through an agency. We didn't really know where we were being broadcast anywhere in the world, and that's the big difference, really. If you plot from 1997, 98, that era, really, the the, the phenomenon, as well as the stadia, as well as the football. Really this global kind of spread and the way it's reached the rest of the world is the big difference over that period.
0: We're going to talk more about the global spread and the global growth. Was that then, would you say, the first thing that you wanted to change or instill and was that your number one vision when you walked in? Um,
3: yeah, I think so. I think when you when you looked at the way we were, we were doing very well domestically, pay television had, do, it had done a good job for us, Sky had done a particularly good job for us, and not to underestimate either the BBC, and I know that's part of your heritage, um, in terms of a free to air highlights programme that still to this day defies all commercial logic. The audiences on a Saturday night for match of the day, for those of you who are from England or familiar with it, is still a phenomenon. And the audiences continue to grow. Despite all the games that are on live, despite all the extra ways of watching football, match of the day highlights on a Saturday night is a national institution. And it's gone, the audience has grown. And that programme was a fantastic Teaser, a stroke promoter for, 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 for pay television for the Sky, the Sky offering. So, so that was going along nicely, and that's uh, and that's ever expanded. But the international situation was the one really I concentrated most of my efforts on, because I knew when you, when you when you travel the world, you just got a sense, particularly in Asia, where Liverpool and Manchester United continue, you know, were still were, were popular then. Um, clearly, it's gone exponential since then. But uh, I just thought the idea we sold our entire international. Exploit, exploitation to one agency with no, we didn't even have a clue where we were being broadcast, let alone what sort of audiences, and that was my big concentration, yeah.
0: Quite simply, Richard, why is the Premier League so successful, so good?
3: Well, these people, these people out here know why. <laughs> um, you know, I, but it, it, I, I say it's, first of all, it's unscripted drama of the highest order, and people like a bit of that, don't they? It's the uncertainty of it. It's actually, for me, it's what I call the competitive intensity um, of the game. I mean, that really is what it's all about, and I think it's linked to that the, the integrity of it. We've got some very authentic club names. I'm not going to call them brands. I wouldn't want to use that, but certainly club names and club badges that have been around since you know, the, the late 1880s and 1890s. So there's, a, there's an authenticity to it there is the competitiveness the idea that any given weekend and boy this season have we have we proved that yet again that any team can be any any other team chelsea. yeah there's I... <laughs> somebody beating chelsea this season <laughs> right <laughs> i saw those boys out there on the everton uh, usa stand they did yeah, where are they? Where's the Everton lot? Yeah, it's one of the best games I've been to this season, that's for certain, Everton-Chelsea, that was fantastic. But it's the, it's the, it's the honesty of it, to, to be honest, it's just that competitiveness where, and again, you know, you produce games that people, when they look at it on paper, who would have thought Leicester-Aston Villa would have produced such a game as it did, you know, at the start of the season, you don't look down that one and naturally think that's a you know a fantastic game of football and that 3-2 was as good as anything there's been this season just in terms of its its intensity.
0: Okay so you have this fantastic product and you know that you want to spread the word and go global. Exactly how did you go about doing that Richard?
3: Well firstly we decided in uh, 2000 just about 2000 to issue what we call an invitation to tender and we actually built a database of every single sports broadcaster in the world pretty much, in every single country, and we issued this invitation to tender to I think something like 700 um, broadcasters, and it was a roaring success, 14 replied, (laughs) 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 Um, because the world wasn't quite, well they didn't actually trust us, they didn't think that a league based in England would deal directly in Thailand or deal directly in Indonesia or deal directly in India or even in, in, in America. Because what was happening is the agencies then that, 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 that tied all these things up just went round and said, don't worry, we've already got these rights. Don't, don't bother bidding to the Premier League because we're going to get them. Just come and buy them from us. And so we found the first time very difficult and only 14 replied. But then three years later, we had a breakthrough. We effectively broke the regional kind of uh, corporate monopolies that there were in, in Asia. And there was a joint venture between Rupert Murdoch's um, uh, company and ESPN. And they had the whole of Asia really kind of you know uh, sewn up. But Hong Kong, bless them, the cable company in Hong Kong broke the mold and came and did the first deal with us directly. And then everybody else since has kind of followed. And now we, we deal directly with broadcasters all over the world, so we have 84 relationships all over the world on a direct basis sold. We, we don't have any international employees at all. We have one actually. Uh, we run a guy who runs out our Brussels office trying to keep the Europeans at Calais. Um, and that's, uh, that's quite hard. <laughs> and, uh, and then we, we basically, that's how it works. Yeah.
0: The success of the brand has obviously improved the lives of players and managers and so many people connected to the game. How do you think the global growth of the Premier League has affected the lives of fans in England?
3: Well, the reality is, being a fan in England, remember, for all of us, me included, is often a miserable affair. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're all pessimists, really, and we're, our teams, very, very few of us support a club whose team is doing as well as it thinks it should be doing and you know if you're a Newcastle fan or if you're uh, you know there are you know or Chelsea. I didn't say Chelsea you said Chelsea <laughs> um, you know whoever you're supporting pessimism is part of it isn't it these people out here know this <laughs> you know basically being a pessimist about your fans your team's fortunes is, is difficult anyway so it's very hard to judge quite frankly the entire mental state or mood of of the english fans but i think you know look we are the world's league and the reason we're the world's league is because we welcome the players from you know all over the world we've had 98 different nationalities you know take part and that's something we're proud of we're not we're not ashamed of we're actually proud of the fact that we've welcomed 98 different nationalities 61 are currently playing in the league this season and that's the thing to be proud of and we are a great export for the uk and i think you know when when and the, and the fans understand really and i think that you know most football fans actually what they want is they want their team to win and whether the player is from this country or from that country or from another country whether the managers from here or the managers from there ultimately the clubs are the only sustainable part of football the clubs have been there for a 100 years they're going to be there in 100 years time the club badges although sometimes they do get amended, and sometimes, I know the Everton fans weren't too happy about when theirs got tweaked a little bit, Um, but the reality is the clubs are the sustainable unit of football, and the players, of course, come and the players go, the managers come and the managers go, and I think, you know, but basically I think the fans in England, for all the research we do, think we're on a a roll.
0: Would you say, though, that it has been a bit of a, a journey in terms of ticket prices have gone up? kickoff change uh, kickoff times have have i mean markedly changed from 15 years ago has that at all been something that's been in the forefront of your minds because the, without the fans of course we don't want empty stadiums
3: No, absolutely but you know there is a pie of interest and you look at that pie and i do accept and i understand there is a segment of that pie of of, of audience that may have been lost you know in terms of you know they're just no longer enfranchised is that the word um, with the game, but you can't argue that we've attracted a much, much larger pie, and therefore there's far more people involved, far more women involved in the game, far more young people. Our audiences, despite all the the, the urban myth, are getting younger, getting considerably younger, um, and, they're, and, and they're much more diverse than they were. were. We're more diverse as an audience than the general UK population, and therefore, you know, there's a huge appeal.
0: How much bigger can it grow? How much bigger?
3: Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, Depends what you mean by grow in terms of audience or in terms of, in terms of, in terms of revenue. Just to give you some idea of numbers, um, we think from all our research there are 35 million individual adults, separate, separate adults, who have watched a Premier League game in the US last season. So that's 35 million people. Now compare and contrast that, only 14.7 million people watched a game in the UK last year so already the US you could argue has twice as many people that say they've watched a Premier League game in the last 12 months than the UK now that number is less in China and there's about 30 million have said they've watched a game well there's you know 1.3 billion of them so there's a few to run out there there's a few to run out in India at 1.2 billion Indonesia 280 million people nearly as large as the US and I could go on there are 185 countries recognized by the United Nations there are 212 territories because Hong Kong is a part of China but it's a separate territory I could there are 212 places to run at and I've got the energy to keep going a little longer um, and therefore I think there's huge scope for growth huge
0: the line of whether the bubble will, though, ever burst is, has been brought out, Richard, and has been talked about, I think, for 10 years, and met you hear so many people within the game saying, yep, it's going to burst, it'll be burst within the next three years. Does it, and it hasn't, and it doesn't look like it's going to, does it ever keep you awake at night, that worry?
3: No. No. I don't keep, nothing keeps me <laughs> awake at night, sadly. Um, <laughs> No, that's… Uh, no, that's that. <laughs> no, seriously. But does it
0: have a ceiling, do you think? No, ha-
3: but how can it? Because look at, just look at audience, look at, look at what's happening around the world. Look, will it go on growing as fast as it's grown in the last 10? It can't. I mean, look at what we've done in the UK. In our UK, our television rights grew by 70% three years ago, and they've just gone by 70% again. You cannot and I hope there's quite a few of my bosses in the audience, I think some of my club chairmen. The idea that we're going to keep on growing by 70% every three years, it's, it defies all commercial logic. It can't, but it can keep on growing you know, quite nicely. Internationally, again, we're right in the middle of a new cycle. We, we grew our international rights by about 40% last time. I think it can go on growing, but that's the economic aspects of it. Audience is very interesting. What fascinates us, and you are all in the room here, are, are part of this phenomenon, is how people are interacting and consuming. You know, we've be gone from being a, 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 a sport that was just attended, and then all of a sudden along it came television. And Remember, the clubs and football balked against television. It was going to kill the game. A single live game was going to completely kill the game, and that's clearly not true. And now a lot of people engage through television, and now the phenomenon of the last ten years, and certainly the last five, and even, you might argue, the last three, is the interaction that people have with this game way beyond television. And look at, you know, the whole Men in Blazers phenomenon is started with a, face it, started with a, you know, not even a podcast. Started with a blog, then to a podcast. And who'd have then thought that those two guys would be fit fit for television? (laughs) Um, Unlike you. Um, And the reality is that's the whole... Phenomenon, really. Where I, you know, I, I came in last night. I, you know, I looked at the Twitter feed of what's going on here, and it's a. Fun, it, what's happening is there's an engagement that is way beyond, just way beyond, the, the television audience. It's a very pervasive, very interactive, very personalised, you know, personalised thing, and it's 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 fantastic to see.
0: Is it the best league in the world?
3: Well, I am the one person who's never said it. Um, people say it of us. But I think the word best is interesting, I think you, there are th- uh, probably 20 measures that you could put in that say, you know, rank the leagues on all these very different measures. Certainly in terms of audience, we are, we know we are. In terms of global audience, we know we outstrip everybody else. In terms of uh, revenues, in terms of, you know, f- in terms of football, of course we are. In terms of our international reach, we are. But then it's very hard to get into those other measures as to, as to whether we're the best or not. If you're measuring us right now by European success, then um, we're all banking on Chelsea. Uh, why, Richard, Just to keep the Chelsea theme going. Why, um,
0: why do you think that European success has not been there for the last few years and should well, it be?
3: I didn't really know the answer when we got three to the semifinals of the Champions League, and I don't really have the answer now, um, to be candid. I think, though... There must be something to do with the fact that the Premier League is so important to the clubs in England, where, despite even managers coming in and even owners who think the Champions League is more important, the fans and the players, you know, don't really allow clubs in the Premier League to not make it their absolute number one priority. And so Arsene Wenger and others all say, you know, winning the Premier League is more important to me our club uh, than anything else. Whereas that's not the same in other European countries. In other European countries where the domestic leagues aren't quite so strong, um, you know, the Champions League and the European thing is, is, is more, relatively more important. But I don't, it's, it's, it is quite difficult to put your finger on exactly why we haven't done so well in, uh, in, recent, uh, in recent months.
0: I want to talk about the growth of the Premier League in this country. Yeah. And you in America have history. You worked here. Um, when you were working here, Richard, what was, how was football viewed back then?
3: I got very nervous when you said well, I have history. Have history. <laughs> <laughs> I once had a citation for taking beer on the beach in Florida. That, uh, <laughs> the policeman stopped me and gave me a ticket, which is uh, <laughs> that's about the worst that's happened to be in America. Um, um, but that's hardly history. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant. I've been coming here since I was uh, eight years old, because the, the guy I talked about at the beginning in the wheelchair, he had a twin sister who came here in 1946. And therefore, for my sins, I'm a Cincinnati Reds and Cincinnati Bengals fan. Any Reds, any Reds or Bengals fans out there? Yay! Yeah, yeah. So uh, Cincinnati is my real sporting, uh, sporting home in the U.S. Um, and she's still there now, doing what she does. Um, and so I've been coming here a long time. I worked here for four years, uh, three, four years back in the mid-90s. And it's incredible to see the growth, incredible to see the growth of interest in, in football. Um and it makes me very you know it's 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 fantastic to see. I have to say selfishly from a Premier League point of view, Fox did a very good job. Fox took something that wasn't particularly popular, invested heavily in it, gave it some dedicated resource and did a good job. And to their chagrin really, they built some sort of audience here that NBC and the others then took an interest in. <laughs> and have taken such an interest in, they've invested in us, as you know, not just for the last uh, couple, but for the next uh, six years beyond this one as well. And so, you know, that, and that's been great, but it's not just, as say, it's just not the TV, it's just not the TV, you know, it's the social media side as well, it's, uh, it, it's great.
0: Did you always see in this country that this could happen? Or have you been surprised?
3: I, I'll be very honest, because you may as well be, there's not much point in being anything else. I actually didn't think it would <laughs> why um because i thought i th- i well I, I suppose because i've been coming here for so long and it hadn't yeah you know if you've been if you've been doing some if you've been watching something for the best part of 47 48 years and for 42 of those there's hardly been a flicker on the dial you do wonder if this thing's got any life in it at all and so and you you see what's happened to the nfl and you see what's happened to the other major sports, because it's not as if the US hasn't got some rather fantastic other sports as well um, that are hugely popular. And so you do begin to wonder whether it will ever happen. And I probably went through a phase 10 years ago where I maybe thought it was just going to stay a sort of kids participation sport and never it may not even transcend and get that far.
0: Because it's fair to say it does feel like it's become a priority of the Premier League in the last five years would that be fair and is that part of the reason why
3: it's been a priority of ours for a long time but when you you play a game in England your only real access and reach is through television you can only do what the television companies and and the audiences decide is popular you can try all you like but there's nothing I can do I can't sit in my office in London and suddenly wave a magic wand and go America suddenly be interested and so you, can, you really have to work through the, the tools that you've got. And the tools you've got are the broadcasters. And the broadcasters now, thank goodness, have found a slot for us and found a home for us in the work that your guys are doing. And I, you know, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but you and your colleagues do as good a job of promoting and, and producing the Premier League as anywhere I work within the world. Thank
0: you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you I appreciate that. Um, and we love doing it. With regards to the future in this country, I speak to a number of people, and one of the sort of buzz conversations, if you like, quite often is, when is it going to become the second most watched sport in America? Because we're climbing all the time, in fact, each season goes by. The NFL is the NFL, and I get different answers. Some say 10 years, some say 16 years, some say 25. Have you ever thought about it, and if you did, what would you think?
3: I've never actually thought about it. Think about it now. But you want me to think about it now? (laughs) Okay, I think in seven years, five months, (laughs) two weeks, three days and 26 minutes. I I, I really haven't thought about it, because you just don't know. But but, but does it matter? And this is my point, you know, we, we go into India and everybody says, India is cricket. Well, of course it's cricket. But there's 1.3 billion people there's plenty of room to be number two or number three or number four or number five it's still huge and therefore i, I this is not a zero-sum game and this is a, a, my you know we we sometimes get criticized for going in and doing better in countries than they're in domestic leagues and i say well this is crazy because there's nothing you're working on the basis there's only a finite number of people and a finite amount of interest If you actually grow something, you know, the old phrase, a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats. And I think it doesn't really matter whether we're one, two, three, four or five, as long as we're growing, doing well, finding our own space.
0: You mentioned domestic leagues. Major Mm. League Soccer over here doesn't get the viewers that the Premier League gets. How worried do you think they should be?
3: Um, I think they're doing a great job. I think that it's growing. I think it's happening I think if you look back at the numbers if you look back at some of the audiences I know you know people like Joe Roth and in Seattle and my old friend from from England Phil Rawlings down in Orlando You know these people I know are doing a great job and Don Garber there is nobody I'm closer to actually of any other person who runs any other league in the world Don and I have more to do with each other than anybody and at the end of the day it's happening and as long as football grows and whether you know it's like us it's like us in the world cup i am the first to admit that generally a world cup is the thing that gets more people engaged in football for the first time uh, than anything in the 1994 world cup here world cups around the world those are the things that tend to get people hooked to start being interested in football and then along comes the thought well hold on a minute that's only once every four years what can I do in between that and therefore we're all in the same business we are all me Don and everybody else are in the business of making football as popular as it can be in whichever country is being operated and ultimately it's not for Don or me or you or anybody else to decide it's for all these people out here you know the GFOPS will decide what they want to watch and we can't alter that. You're going to decide. Ultimately, the consumer is the ultimate champion. And they'll decide what they want to spend their precious time, eyeballs, and money following. And that will that, be the people that decide.
0: So following on from that, the GFOPs, I bet if I asked every single one of them, would love their team to come over and play a competitive game in the United States. The 39th game. Oof. Is it inevitable, Richard?
3: I, uh, it's interesting. I have a... A couple of scars on my back, (laughs) sort of. They're still there, the lashes I got from the British media for even venturing to suggest. Um, Even the fact it wasn't going to be a 39th game, People, you know know the history of all this. It's actually eight years ago we were uh, in planning for this and we kind of announced about, in February of coming up, in February of 08, so almost eight years, the reality is, I, I don't think we are any nearer doing it now than we were eight years ago. And you could argue, we're, I have to say, we're further away. And I'll say, why do I say that? Because we thought, we underestimated the UK fan resistance to doing it. And ultimately, you have to have, you cannot just do things that don't resonate with the fans whose club it is at home. Now, whilst the global audience is fantastic, and of course the TV audience around the world is bigger than those that attend, those that actually have season tickets and attend week in, week out, to me have become now part of the, they're actually part of the show, they're not really part of the audience. The actual crowd is as much part of the show, you know, as the players and the manager. And until and such times is that fan attending season ticket audience think it's acceptable, or there is an arrangement that can be made, whether it be, you know, economic, or whether it be basically, you know, facilitate, if until the attending fan base of our clubs gets comfortable with the idea of one of their games being played abroad, I just don't see how it can happen. And I, in some ways, I envy the NFL. I envy the, uh, you know, the idea that the Jacksonville Jaguars, or the Bills, or anybody can just, up sticks and play one of their eight or nine games in london but until the until the fan bases of our clubs are more comfortable with it i think it's almost going to be impossible to do
0: how do you make them more comfortable
3: I don't, well, well again we, we you know we, we're having dialogue with with the supporter groups but it's nowhere near um, likely to happen not in the near future
0: and is that because i mean you understand their frustrations that's because they feel that it it, it will affect the regular season it will affect their season ticket what what are they saying to you about why they don't want to do it
3: number one you know yes i'm a season ticket holder i have bought my 19 games i don't want just to buy 18 i've been to every game for the last five years i don't want to not miss i don't don't want to miss a game number one issue number two and you know steve parish is here somewhere he's going to be speaking he's around somewhere hello steve yay And Steve makes a very good point and none of we can't get our heads around the integrity point because Crystal Palace at home to Manchester United At the mighty Selhurst Park with the Holmesdale gang shouting as loud as they can in the corner is an intimidating place to go It's a difficult game as Liverpool found out two seasons ago. It cost them probably cost them the title the three all is that people clapping the fact that is Liverpool fans cost the title? But the reality is that game, Crystal Palace at a home, for those, you know, any club going there, is a tough game. Crystal Palace at home to Manchester United, played in Hong Kong, is not a Crystal Palace home game. It'll be absolutely full and mobbed with Manchester United fans. It'll be very difficult and it affects the integrity of the competition and we have not yet found have we steve the answer to that you know to that conundrum
0: interestingly 8 years ago when you had obviously when you announced that you were thinking of this you, a lot of work had obviously gone yeah. in, into thinking about it so at that point and at the moment it's academic but if in 10 years it was on the table again had you decided how it would work in terms of which yeah. club would play which club and why?
3: Well, and yeah, we had. There was only there was only two ways of doing it. Either you take a 38th game, i.e. one of the regular 38. And if you take one of the regular 38, it's the problem I've just discussed in terms of, you know, somebody's home game is no longer their home game. The reason we thought playing an extra game was the right thing to do is because you could actually it wouldn't actually altered that it wouldn't alter the fact that you'd still play each other home and away and the extra game statistically wouldn't make any difference to the outcome of a league over a season statistically the more games you play the more likely it is that the right team wins and the, and the right teams get relegated it's just a, a, a mathematical you know certainty so we actually thought that what you would do is you would play one through ten would play eleven through twenty so one would play eleven two would play twelve three would play thirteen and so you basically had a 10-place gap, if you like, between each team, which would make it as pretty much as, uh, as, as, as as integrity intact as it could be, save for nobody could get over the fact that this was an extra game. It didn't seem symmetrical. The, you know, it was it was the home and away thing was was going to be interrupted, and it just couldn't. People couldn't get their heads around it.
0: Okay, we will watch watch this space. And, um, and
3: if anybody's got any bright ideas, by the yeah. way.
0: As come to on. how we,
3: uh, you know, we uh, we solve the problem.
0: I'll come to you in just a moment, Mr. Bright, idea on the front row. Um, before <laughs> before I come to this chat, um, just finally, who's going to win the league? Spurs. Huh. <laughs> Spurs.
3: It's time for a straw. It's time for a straw poll.
0: Come on, Richard. What do you think? Uh, I don't. I, I've never
3: made predictions, do I? I've never have. You've I never know. seen That's me why make I'm predictions. To do it. I don't know. Yeah, it'll be between Man City and Arsenal, but that's a very easy thing to say.
0: I'll let you off on that. Okay, we've got a few minutes um, for any questions for Richard.
2: Well, uh, one situation that comes to mind in the future is the fact that Spurs are building a new stadium. Chelsea is looking to renovate Stamford Bridge. And there is a possible talk of a ground share at Wembley. Uh, So would that be a situation where we could perhaps get a game over here in the United States, two teams that at least one of them are a little bit more followed than the other in the United States. Um, You still would have the issue with it being a London Derby with season ticket holders coming out to Wembley, but you would surpass the number of season ticket holders that both grounds would hold um, on a regular match day. So would something like that, sort of an extenuating circumstance, um, play into your thinking.
3: I just don't like the idea of just picking two teams. And one of the reasons, one of the, one of the great jobs that NBC have done is constant, not just concentrating on one or two or three or four teams, where all the teams get a fair shout. I think that's probably fair to say. That's and they do yeah. profiles on various teams, and you know, you know, Bournemouth come up and they go down there and do a big piece on Bournemouth and so on. So I, I would resist I would resist doing something that you couldn't do for all 20 and I think it's very important that you know the collective ethos of the Premier League is so strong and one of the reasons we wanted to play all 10 games from around abroad was that you literally all 20 teams would be involved and so the idea of just picking a particular fixture or picking two teams clearly yeah a Liverpool Man United game or a Chelsea Tottenham game would be big but in some ways it would be it would be even worse I think than than the alternatives that we were involving all
1: 20 teams So, So assuming you're never going to come here, (laughs) getting tickets to a match in England is quite a challenge if you're an American traveling there, and uh, so what could be done to encourage or to set aside some tickets for visiting fans coming to England? Well. It
3: may be a challenge, but there are 26,000 of you coming every week, can you believe? 800,000 a year fly in, 26,000 do manage You know what, what, what you've done. Uh, it's quite interesting. Obviously, we, the league, isn't as centralized as you might imagine. It's certainly we, the Premier League, don't centralize a lot of things as much as your American sports do. And therefore, we really don't have any role to play in ticketing. Though, if you think, you know, uh, there must be ways and means of, uh, of, 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 of improving the situation. And if you really are struggling to, to actually find tickets and find access...
1: In um, the United States, for example, we have StubHub and we have yeah, reselling yeah. agreements. And I have found it hard to even find those tickets. I'm going to the Crystal Palace match in two weeks against Newcastle. It sold out. It was a real challenge. I just recently was able to find seats, but it was a real challenge.
3: Well, remember, um, again, I'm going to show my ignorance now. Um, But there's obviously a lot, I think on average, we are now about 70% of all our fans are season ticket fans. And those tickets rarely become available. Um there's some clubs that do, but, but 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 once people have got that season ticket, those tickets don't become available. The match day sale tickets are snapped up, and there's a huge demand obviously domestically within the within the UK for those tickets. And it is quite a challenge. It's a challenge for everybody, you know, it's a challenge for you, but it's also a challenge for people in the UK to get tickets um to those games. And the ticket resellers don't actually do quite as much as they do here in the US. And certainly in baseball, I understand if you've bought a season ticket and you've got a hundred and 62 games 81 home games I, I can understand why people don't go to every one but when you've only got 19 um you know people do try to go to everyone and therefore the ticket resale market particularly to the uh, to the popular matches you know aren't great but there are mean ways and means there are travel agencies there are people that do it um but as i say i don't have the magic answer as to uh, as to how to suddenly make lots of tickets available because it is a supply and demand you know issue as you can probably appreciate
0: Richard has to get a a plane, so we have to let him go. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Richard Scudamore. Thank
1: you. Oh, thanks to both Richard Scudamore and Rebecca Lowe for joining us and kicking off BlazerCon in such fine style. You can see chunks of that interview and glorious Technicolor on the Men in Blazers show BlazerCon special, which will air this Tuesday, November 24th at 11 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. There'll be highlights of all of the panels, Kung Fu Fighting America.